Hello and welcome back to Constantine Monologue. In this episode, we're going to be discussing Time of Contempt, Chapter 1. Uh, this is the one of the big, big novels um, out of the Pentology. It's probably my favorite. I, you know, I sort of bounce around um, because, you know, there's so many great moments in these books. Um, Lady of the Lake is also just fan-fucking-tastic. But this book, Time of Contempt, really sets in, in motion... All the big stuff that's going to pay off later. Uh, Blood of Elves was establishing current status quo, getting some things set up, establishing character relationships. This book is where the status quo blows up. It is the uh, you know point of no return, the change um, in the uh, in the status quo that you know begins a massive story. Technically, the story's already begun, you know, short stories and all that, but it is the point where it becomes very obvious. Um, and it, it, it's very, very good. It's very tightly plotted. Unlike Blood of Elves, as me and Josh talked about, you know, Time of Contempt actually has a plot compared to uh, Blood of Elves, which is mostly plotless with primarily character dynamics taking uh, you know, taking center stage and a lot of foreshadowing. This does have a central plot. And once again, I want to stress, there is nothing wrong with having no plot. There's actually great, great stories out there with no plot. Plot is not necessary for story. Story and blood are separate. Time of Contempt really wants to hammer home that unlike Blood of Elves, it does actually have a plot. And that's really apparent in this uh, chapter. You know, we're, we're foreshadowing a lot of things. We're setting up a lot of things. Uh, and we cut between Applegat and Geralt uh, throughout this chapter. And Applegat is a royal messenger. Um, and th there's a nice little lampshade by uh, Spikowski of, you know, all, all the people who always go, why can't mages solve everything? Magic is all, all, all omnipotent and can do whatever. It's like, no, 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 no. That, that does not always apply. You know, even with the most fanciest technology, sometimes older, more rudimentary concepts must be taken into account for, whether it's because there's a chance of interception, whether there's a chance of, um, you know, a traitor uh, trust trustworthiness is important especially in these you know uh messages between the royal courts and mages aren't exactly trustworthy never have been um and secrecy is paramount right now because there is the feeling of war in the air and the war does effectively start at the end of this chapter for the most part i mean it is it's a long, complicated process. The official declaration of war will be a little later in this book. I don't think that's spoilers, considering. Um, you know, we have the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand right here. Um, this is the shot heard around the world that begins the downward spiral. You know, there, there's there's lots of talk about how everybody kind of feels that, you know, war's in the air. Meave is constantly, uh, you know, berating enough Guardian, something's up. Uh, no one really believes in what anybody is saying. There's uh, ill omens, cows being milked, you know, uh, with blood. Um, the wild hunt, the specters uh, seen riding around, though, those are always known as, you know, the, the whenever they show up, that forebodes war. You know, um, even, you know, last book, everybody kind of knew there was a war going on or war about to start. Um, and that, that, that was, you know exacerbated by when we were in the in the monarch's pov and we heard about the false flag operation they're planning but it was always the learned people um you know um 
people who were observant, people who followed the money, who uh, or were connected in some way. Now everyone knows, down to the you know the simplest tavern owner. Everyone knows this thing is going to happen, um, and everybody's on edge. And it doesn't take much to send those dominoes toppling down. Um, the entire thing with Applegat, you know, he's there to relay a message that says, don't do the false flag operation. Then, you know, he, he gets a message that, well, I'm not going to follow that. Uh, just continue on with it. And then he gets another message of, don't be an idiot, basically. Uh, Amir is waiting. He knows, you know, that he has armies waiting at the border, just ready for the slightest Cassius Belly to be activated to march across and begin slaughtering again. This ain't gonna work. And of course, he gets shot at the end. Uh, and what's worse is that shot um, is even more hideous and callous when taken into context. Um, so, you know, Teruvial uh, and Yavin are there and Teruvial's from the short story The Edge of uh The Edge of the World. Uh she was the super racist elf uh that Geralt, you know, headbutted and, you know, that's the only kind of medicine to deal with those kind of people. Uh and he tried to calm her down. Um and uh it seems like some of that has worked. She's still she still is part of the squirrels. Um, you know, and she's still fighting for a nebulous freedom that doesn't really have much going for it, but she still is. She's more of the middling squirrels, where she's like, I don't want to kill civilians. And you know, when Yavin, who, by the way, uh, yes, I, 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 I'll mention another thing about this later. But the games do bring Yavin in and and have him show up uh, in Witcher One. That's neither here nor there because I'm not not the biggest fan of the games. But I just figured most people would uh, would say, "Hey, game guy," because you know uh, the games were the primary method of which the series got translated, so that we could all read it here uh, in the western half of the world. Um, and so she, you know, she she's like, "Hey, don't." Uh, there, there's no reason to kill Applegat. You know, he's far away. We could barely hit him. It doesn't really matter. There's no point in killing civilians. Is that really what fighting for freedom is all about? Killing the innocent? And Gavin takes that as a bet. Like, oh, you bet I can't shoot him from here? Oh, really? And he shoots him. And he kills him. And that means the message from Dijkstra never gets sent. Which means the false flag operation goes through. Which means... War begins, uh, and it all spirals from there. The assassination of Archduke Ferdinand in World War One—that you know—that that is often considered the shot, the the big pivotal moment that started World War One. Uh, that it was right there, but everybody kind of knows, and it's been long debated whether World War One would have happened regardless. You know, everybody was on edge. There was already, you know. He was, he, he was, uh, you know, it was a powder keg waiting to go off. All it took was one simple spark, and Archduke Ferdinand happened to be that spark. But there might have been another, or another, etc. And so, does it really matter? What I think really says a lot about this and what Sapkowski's doing, because you know, he he does play a lot with real life history. Um, especially later, there'll be like some very blatant historical parallels. Uh, complete with characters sharing similar names or, you know, straight up using direct verbiage from actual 
historical figures, but also after he does Witcher, he also writes an actual historical fiction book series, the Hussite Trilogy. So he does have a very interesting relationship with history and how that relates to his work. And because World War I was such a big, monumentous uh, you know, war that changed everything, um, and the effects were felt, you know, years and years and years down the line, um, you know, in many ways, World War Two is just the aftershocks of what happened in World War One. You know, uh, that you know we're we're feeling that in here, where the Nilfgaardian War ended, but you know it, it's more of a stall, and that we are coming to uh, a new Nilfgaardian War, much like how World War One was just a stall for World War Two, etc. But also, the assassins for Archduke Ferdinand were told to not do it. But then they decided to go ahead anyway, fucked up, decided not to go along with it, and then happenstance happened, and then they got it. It was a complete comedy of errors. And if it was, if the shot had not landed and had not started a horrific war, that entire sequence of events could appear in a really bad comedy movie. Yet it happened. And that one shot. By, you know, some assassin who was told not to do it, decided not, you know, couldn't, kept fucking up, decided not to do it, decided to randomly go get, you know, something to eat, and then bam, shot Archduke Ferdinand on his way, inadvertently began a massive war that killed so many people, you know, it is mind-boggling. All it took was one little spark. So, this is the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand in the Witcher world. The assassination of one simple royal messenger named Applegat, who had a family, kids, wife, was a simple, humble man, had uh, no real interest in most political affairs. He simply was doing his job, you know? And that's that's the sad thing of it, is that th these kind of situations, all it does is to take one little spark. And if it wasn't this one, it would have been another. Um, in, in that... That really shows the futility and the cycles we go through as a species of how human nature and human history is essentially just one big circle. How we keep making the same mistakes over and over and over and over again to the point that we repeat everything. Um, you know, there's a, there's a saying, you know, uh, history doesn't repeat, but it sure rhymes. And the idea is that, you know, history doesn't quite repeat. There's always different iterations but it's always the same relative idea just with a slight twist uh and so that that's how uh we end up in these situations and how it constantly destroys us over and over and over again and ain't that really really sad and really indicative of who we are as a people and how you know this war in this fictional world began with a bet and in our real world, a similar war began just because a guy was hungry and decided to take the shot that he was told not to. That is the world we live in. And that's the sad thing about Witcher is that often as fanciful and as crazy as it can be, uh, you know, with magic and elves and dwarves, it's still not too far from us. Um, and I think that's important to remember um, is that you know, fiction should and always should be a reflection of our reality in some way. Um, and Witcher is the reflection of a Polish man's reality 
of a man who grew up in the after effects of World War II and watched as his country uh, was, you know, destroyed and rebuilt and, uh, and occupied, etc. So it has a very cynical outlook, but it has an outlook of someone who's experienced similar things. Um, that's, what, that's what good writing is. Writing is the perspective of that person at that time is always reflective of them in some way. Every aspect of them is in some character. That really shows here where Sapkowski is pretty much damning the the world he lives in and the world he grew up in, saying, this keeps happening for the dumbest reasons and ends up in such cruel and horrible circumstances that, you know, millions die for what? A bet? You know? That is the true cruelty uh, at the heart of it. And it really, it just really digs in and shows you just how painful our world truly is when you actually look at it. Geralt's side of the story with Codringer and Finn. Wonderful stuff. I love Codringer and Finn because they're so delightfully weird. Um, you know, uh, Codringer must have, you know, he has like, uh, you know, he, he's always coughing, he, he's clearly ill, but he's incredibly smart and he's a lawyer, but <laughs> what he does has little in common with the law. Uh, you know, he, he's more of a power broker or anything, uh, you know, someone who finds secrets, finds information and, uh, and uses that as leverage. Um, and Fen, you know, is a person born with dwarfism, you know, uh, not fantasy dwarfs as in an actual little person, an actual disease that exists in real life, um, and, you know, uh, is wheelchair bound, uh, but that doesn't get in the way of his want to, uh, you know, be, uh, powerful in some way, be an information broker, uh, and so Codringer acts as sort of the face of the operation, while Finn clearly is one of the, the big brains in the operation, uh, and, you know, uh, I don't often talk about this, but, you know, representation is very important in media, and we don't talk about that nearly enough in a lot of situations, so, it, you, you know, it's really nice to, to see someone who, you know, uh, well, not a main character, is someone who's looked up to that happens to have dwarfism on his wheelchair bound, clearly disabled, but is still able to do great work and have great impact. But the Codringer and Finn side, you know, there's a lot of foreshadowing and I could get into it forever. Um, but, you know, there's there's hints at Amir's true identity, which once again, because that's in the, the show, I kind of just go, OK, well, I guess I'm talking about that now, you know, that he was actually Dunny. And there's lots of disputes over who Dunny actually was in this chapter. The show doubt, uh, the so doubt in Geralt and so doubt into the reader to really get us starting to think about what was his true intentions, what was that short story truly about. And of course, if you know the end of the novels, or, you know, you've played the games, or you've watched the TV show, you know that, well, Amir is Dunny, and that that was everything that's going on, and that's why they can't really trace him back, and that's why his origins seem obtuse and a lie, etc., there's also talk about the Elder Blood, that, um, you know, it, it, the direct translation isn't child of the Elder Blood, it's daughter of the Elder Blood. Um, but, you know, Elven script is really hard to translate properly, so who knows? 
Uh, that will become important later uh, when we talk about the entire situation with the Elder Blood. I don't really want to get into it, you know, and I don't think it's, a, you know, that it's a large portion, but it will be explained in detail later. So there's no real point in me getting into it in the spoiler section. So, you know, j let's just say that the, the, the importance of daughter rather than child is actually really, really important to uh, what's coming down the road. I also like the, the way that we offer Tay that uh, Geralt and Codringer have. That Codringer, you know, he he was hired by Dandelion to help Geralt. Uh, and then Geralt shows up. And, you know, people had already showed up asking for information about Ciri. And so Codringer had given them false information of, oh, yeah, she's dead, whatever. But uh, then uh, it, and Geralt suspects, oh, it's just because they didn't pay you enough. But then we see at the end when uh, they make the deal of uh, if Geralt can dodge the Orion, which is just a shuriken, you know, he'll give them this X amount of information. Um, but he intentionally aimed to miss. Kyle Ringer uh, was willing to go through with the deal regardless. And so just missed intentionally, uh, which is why Geralt didn't flinch. And so we see that there's like, a respect between Codringer and Geralt there. Maybe some of it has to do with money, and maybe some of it has to do with, you know, their their profession. Uh, Codringer brings it up, actually, that Geralt is an archaic witcher, he, and Codringer himself is a modern witcher. Did he go through the trials or whatnot? No, absolutely not. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is the perception of monsters, and the perception of doing the right thing to stop these monsters. Codringer is a power broker, an information broker. He helps get information in the right hands. Sometimes he gives false information into the right hands. Uh, he, uh, you know, he deals with debts. He gets people out of sticky situations. It's not always legally sound, but he does it. In a way, he is helping people from monsters or assholes, but sometimes he helps the monsters and the assholes themselves. In other words, he's a witcher doesn't harm those he thinks can be useful or are, you know, intelligent enough to uh, not be harmed, but does harm to help those in need, you know. Um, and that because the monster population is going down and there's been this constant thread throughout the short stories and these books, you know, throughout the entire saga of that witches are a dying breed, that uh, maybe this is the next incarnation witchers take not sword-willy mutants, but instead, you know, uh, information-wielding brokers, basically. People who can deal with monsters, but in a different way. Is there a whole lot of a difference between Geralt and Conringer? Oh, yes, but in their professional sense, it's just semantics. And, and there's that old saying, of course, you know, the pen is mightier than the sword. So who knows? Um, in, in there's, uh, there's a lot of talk, uh, Codringer finding this, uh, person who looks very similar to Siri and perhaps, uh, using her to, um, decoy for Geralt. Um, and in the entire time, Codringer's kind of testing Geralt to see if, like, what is he truly in this for? Is he in it for money or what? And Geralt kind of proves he's in it for personal reasons and that, that kind of earns Codringer's, uh, respect. Uh, and so the, the you know the, the so the false Siri idea is uh, is is abandoned, but that will come back up later. 
Uh, don't feel like that's necessary for spoiler section. There's also a lot of talk about, um, I, I, I talked about in Question Price of how Calanthe maneuvered her way into ruling Sintra because women aren't allowed to rule there uh, exclusively without marriage, and how she sort of barged her way into that and tried to overwrite the rules but couldn't quite, but managed to find loopholes here and there. Uh, you know, they, they, they go through into great detail explaining that um, because, you know, the the right to the center and throne is a big debate amongst everyone right now that is part of the major through line of this story is you know the kings are vying for center and throne emir is vying for the center and throne siri has her own wants and desires and you know what does that matter next to being the ruler of this country and that, that that's all going to come to head in a bit and I, and I do really like how taking into account the conringer and finn stuff with Geralt. Taking into account the Applegant stuff, that really shows, I think, is sort of a wink and a nod, a sort of lampshade of what Sapkowski is trying to do with this series. You know, these are big, heavy, weighty political stuff. Geralt couldn't give a shit. Um, matter of fact, Conringer says, you know, I've never encountered someone with such a great disinterest as you. Um, and, uh, you know, Applegant comes into contact directly with Siri and Yen, doesn't even know who they are. You know, comes in contact with Geralt, uh, both physically and the aftershocks of what he did with the Manticore previously. Does he take great note of any of this? Not really, outside of Geralt slaughtering the Professor, uh, which is a great Old West-style thing. Um, but, you know, there is this sense that Applegant and Conringer Fen are part of the macro kill story. If this was a Game of Thrones or Wheel of Time or any other random-ass fantasy series out there, that would be the focus. Um, you know, but this is just one chapter um, in which it interweaves with our much more micro-story of the story of our family, of Geralt, Yen, and Ciri, trying to find their way into safety throughout all of this. Um, I think this entire chapter serves as a wink and a nod to that kind of storytelling, because that stuff, while important, and especially come to head in this book and a little bit of uh, the other books, becomes of a lesser degree of importance than, you know, the family trying to, you know, find each other again and be together. It, it, it's a fun little thing, um, and covering your fan of such fun characters anyway. Uh, and there's a nice little setup about their, uh, their automatic uh, crossbow system. Uh, that may be unreliable. Uh, remember that for later. There's, there's. They also talk about you know, uh, Ryan's and you know how he was you know a, a member of Ban Ard, got kicked out for stealing, taken by the Kaidwin Secret Service, uh, and is clearly on a leash. Yeah, and on a leash is a term used by mages who are apprenticed to other mages, but are not exactly official. Um, and so that, that me, just, you know, basically you are attached to this person, uh, and under their thumb, you know, basically, and clearly Ryan's is under the, you know, under some of someone on a leash to someone, but exactly who, and many people suspect that he's working for Nilfgaard, but as pointed out by Codbringer, you know, the mages in Nilfgaard are treated very differently than the Northern mages. They're, they are on, on a leash themselves by a mirror. They're, they don't have full autonomy like the northern mages do, so why would a mage ever want to do that? Help Nilfgaard? What, what advantage would it give them? You know, that that leads into the one of the large questions that will become important for later, 
Uh, and if you listen to one of my previous spoiler sections a couple chapters ago, I got into it. So, so there's this lot of conflicting accounts, and of course, Conjuring and Finn being who they are, they are the masters of misinformation, and what they plan to do to ruin Calanthe's reputation, thus ruining Ciri's reputation, thus ensuring that, you know, no legitimacy through her in hopes of protecting her, you know, the, the, the entire idea is what is true and what is false. You know, believe half of what you see and none of what you hear, as the old saying goes. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the professor stuff. As I mentioned a, a couple minutes ago, you know, it's a nice Old West-style confrontation. Geralt come, you know, standing outside the tavern saying, hey, you know, fight me, blah, blah, blah. I'll challenge you to a duel. And then, you know, everything happening and then that great, you know, uh, ending of tell them the white wolf bit them. Uh, and, you know, and uh, that entire confrontation is a lot of fun, very mood setting um, and, re you know, really establishes that the bounty that was put out on Ciri's head uh, last uh, last book is really coming to head where everybody's after her at this point. There's not a safe haven, even while Geralt and Yen try their best to keep her concealed and keep her protected. Sooner or later, no matter what misinformation is spread, whether she's dead or they use that fake Siri, you know, the one that, you know, looks very much like her but isn't her, doesn't matter. Someone's going to come and find her eventually. The money is just too worth it. Uh, and that's a through line through this chapter. You know, it begins with Head of Gold, uh, Arse of Iron, you know, can, you know, does money outweigh the, uh, the, uh, the needs of the personal, basically. You know, the professor does actually show up in Witcher 1, even though he's dead. That's actually a continuity issue in the English translation. So, long story, um, in the original draft of Witcher 1, Galt was not the main character, and it took place during the books. That was eventually scrapped, Geralt was made main character, and it takes place after the books. Uh, as a result, there's uh, like some assets and stuff and some story points that run in incorrectly, causing a lot of continuity errors in the games, especially Witcher 1, but it only gets exacerbated by future entries. Um, in the Polish version, because of this, they changed his name to, I believe, the Magistrate. I can't remember. There is a documentary on YouTube that describes, uh, you know, that, that, that takes us through the uh, the creation of Witcher 1 and how difficult that was and, and all that. But in English translation, it remains professor and he and because it was his model was designed before the switch over to being after the books that means the professor looks like the professor from here with the glasses and all so uh that that has caused a lot of issues and continuity debates and whatnot but it's intended to be a different one not that it much matters to me you know i don't really consider the games at all remotely in connection to these books they're non-canon just like the, the 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 TV show, I don't really think about it when I'm talking about these books. You know, the, these games, while not of interest to me as much as the books are, are important to note because I suspect a large majority of the people listening to this are uh, people who've played the games. And also, and also the large majority of people who have read these books in the Western world began from the games, including myself. So I think sometimes that kind of thing is worth mentioning. Uh, but... This is the big uh, book. A lot of things are going to kick off here. Uh, the status quo will be changed forever. Um, but these first couple of chapters really get us settled in, really set up what's coming up next. Um, and it's a lot of foreshadowing, a lot of setup, and a lot of thematic work being done. But 
it's still worth it in the end for the big, big stuff that's coming down the road. So I'll, so I'll see you next time. Until then, bye.